Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we launch a brand new mini-series on the post-conciliar documents. These are the documents that talk about implementing the changes made in Vatican II. So without further ado, episode 10 of season 4 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Well, actually, I have something cool to say. Do it. There, you know, I'm here at Benedictine College, and the Abbey of St. Benedict is, you know, the founder of the college, and they still have an Abbey, and they have young guys joining, and so the um, novice master, who's a great devotee of the liturgy guys, and then these novices who also listen to the liturgy guys, they, they had some homework that the novice master gave them to write on the difference between religious art and sacred art, and they wrote these papers. And then we had a little discussion with some faculty called a conversatio of art, sacred, and religious. And they footnoted, one of them footnoted us as liturgy guys in uh, for teaching them a lot of what they know about liturgy. So Were they talking about, about me specifically? Because that sounds I, awesome. They did mention you, all three of us, by name in the footnotes. Brother uh, Angelus and Brother Maximilian were, uh, they're great. They wrote these great essays and I was reading them and they were footnoted, but they talked about Charles Legitudini and all this God stuff. God bless you. And I was like, man, this sounds like somebody who's been listening to the liturgy guys. They're like, I could have written you know a lot of this and agreed with all of it and then I found out later they have learned from us so who knows who knows but anyway good job brother Angelus and Maximilian they did really great papers and it was fun to discuss hey I have other good news yeah what's that I Chris you just told us that uh, there's a couple that's getting married because they met at our young adult liturgy conference yes our second liturgy couple man we're we are crushing it yeah it's uh, Aaron and I don't know Aaron's uh fiance's name i'm sorry but uh yeah isn't that great they met last summer at the transfigured conference man well lucky them they got to come to a great conference Mm -hmm. that's the that's getting married for getting married is the second most amazing thing that will happen in their life the first is coming to our conference (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but chris jesse uh so we did this short little series and i do mean short (laughs) On Sacrosanctum Concilium, uh, just we just touched on it, just a tidge, and, uh, and too much you, is never you, enough. And you loved it. You mm. loved talking about Sacrosanctum Concilium so much so that we're gonna board another train to awesomeness. Uh, could you? Uh, could you? I'll be the caboose of that train because obvi. But could you uh, be the locomotive at the t- and uh, tell us where we're going? Yeah. 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 Uh, th- yes. Uh, what, what we're going to do, right, is because uh, we, we, you read Sacrosanctum Concilium, you talk about it, and you think, well, I mean, that's, that's 50 years plus now. And well, what happened over the last 50 years that yeah, we got Yeah, you say, now from, what? Yeah, now what? You know? And so what, what's happened is since the Second Vatican Council, there's been uh, different instructions on how to uh, apply the principles of Sacrosanctum Concilium, because those principles are very... Oh, I don't know, broad in general. And so applying those more 
specifically to the various rights uh, has taken more precise instruction. And so there's been five different post-conciliar instructions for the proper implementation of sacrosanctum Vichilium. And those are what we're going to do throughout this season. Yeah. So take that people who say, oh, Vatican II said this, that, or the other thing, and then you look hard to find it in Vatican II. It's not either it's not there or it might be there in a post-conciliar instruction or it might not be there. So um, sticking with the documents, always a good, safe place mm-hmm. to go. Yeah. Whenever Chris mutes his mic for like three seconds, I just assume he's coughing. So You are assuming. Uh, right. People are going to so, miss, miss the coughs. Yeah. No, that's okay. I'll put him okay. in later. Uh, so are these like the echoes of Vatican II? Uh, these are the applications of Vatican II. Uh, but, but it's like a, it's a continuation. Or it's no, no, how you no, do it. no, no, how you no, do no. What the principles okay. said you should yeah. do. Yeah. See, continuation is bad. What Dennis, you know about this, right? There was uh, after the council, there were two principal groups. One was called uh, Concilium, mm-hmm. and one was called Communio. Right. And Cardinal Ratzinger uh, et al. were in the uh, Communio group, and in the Concilium group were people who just simply wanted to keep the council going, wanted to keep on, uh, you know, doing. <laughs> deliberating about changes and what uh, Cardinal Ratzker would say about the concilium group is no a council is a certain specified thing with a mission in the life of the church and it begins and then it ends and then you apply it but you don't just kind of have this ongoing council you know uh, you know eternally so uh, it's but. these things are applications of the, the norms of the council. Go ahead. Right. So on the other hand, you know, the council says the rights are to be revised as soon as possible. And they give a few little words about, you know, greater intelligibility for the faithful. All right. Well, that's not very specific, right? That's just mm. do this, revise all the rights. It's taken us four or five decades to do it. So then somebody's going to come out and say, well, these are the norms by which they are revised. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. This, you know, and so Liturgium Authenticum was one of them. That was like the rules for translating. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, just to say there should be more vernacular, great. Then the council fathers go home and drink their cappuccino. It's somebody else's job then to figure out how mm-hmm. do we actually do this translation. And the norms are in these post-conciliar instructions. What What yeah. are these five documents? Can we Can we name them just so that we know what we're getting into? Yeah. They have some cool names. Well, they, they do. Briefly, the first is inter then mm-hmm. there's tres abhinc anos. Ooh, I like the that one. The third is liturgiae instaurationes, veritates legitimes, the fourth, and liturgiam authenticam is the fifth. I'm excited. Uh, yeah, but there's some other things in there, too. But what, what I want to do in this podcast is kind of take a run up to that and take kind of a... <laughs> a uh, um, you know, take 20 minutes to look at, say, the last 100 years of, you know, where did the council come from, you know, on the front end of it, and then what happened afterwards. That way we can kind of contextualize these post-conciliar instructions and a couple others a that we'll idea. look at. I think that's a great idea. Love it. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, so, you know, where I want to start uh, with this, uh, at the risk of starting too far back, uh, Dennis, who's uh, who's often considered the father of the modern liturgical movement? There's a couple. There's a couple yeah. legitimate answers. Well, the old one would be Dom Prosper Guéranger from Salem, the Abbot of Salem, but probably more recent would be Lambert Baudouin of Belgium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That was I, not my guess. No, mm-hmm. I was. Uh, I was going to start with Guéranger, just very okay. briefly. So Dom Prosper Guéranger, who is a uh, is he like a servant of God or? Venerable, I think. I think his cause was actually open. Actually, I don't know. So he's in northern France, born 1805, ordained in, uh, what, like 1927. Now, if you know your French history, what, I mean, 
I mean, this, this, or this no, no, sorry, 1827. This was not, you know, like a good time to grow up in France. Yeah. You know, being ordained a priest in the French Revolution. They're killing nuns and tearing down churches and destroying yeah. stained glass. Napoleon is kidnapping popes. And uh, I mean, so Napoleon, I think, uh, dies in uh, uh, what, 1821. And so he, he's ordained just very briefly after that. So this is a real kind of rough time. But he uh, eventually, and so, right, so with the revolution, uh, a lot of the church property was taken over by the government. Okay? But a lot of it just kind of started to fall into a dilapidated state. And so there was this old priory called Salem, which he, Garrick J., who is a Dawson priest, ends up buying and uh, returning it to its Benedictine uh, life in uh, 1832. So he gathers some other people around him in the 1830s and begins to uh, kind of restore a, what, Gregorian chant and to look at liturgical history, uh, to incorporate the Roman books, because uh, there's this thing called what Gallicanism? Gallican. Oh, I was going to say Sorry, that. Yeah, Jesse, on the ball. So I only know that because I took Dennis's liturgical movement class. All right. And, um, but what, what is it? Well, it's a different rite. It was the it was the primary rite by which France was using at that time. So using the Roman rite would have been like different than what everybody there was used to. But Garanger started to, you know, get uh, get all of these pieces into one place and started to create, you know, different music and different, you know, um, am I am I in the right place? Am I? Yeah. Well, there's I a think couple you know, things there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One's a Gallican rite, which is an older form of the rite. There's also Gallicanism, which is another thing that the civil authority has uh, rights over the Catholic Church, which is also another thing going on in, in France. So it can be a little confusing which Gallican you're talking about. See, and I think they're even, you know, they're related in a certain sense because even, you know, the bishops kind of like this Gallicanism thing because it gave them more authority over their own particular books and not the Pope. And so there's kind of an ecclesial form of Gallicanism too. And so there were, I mean, there were many different kind of uh, French or Gallican missiles at this time. I heard somewhere that one bishop said uh, he had five different missiles in his own diocese. Can you imagine that? You know, when, the, when you're the, uh, some bishop today has to go around to different parishes, he has to say, well, which missile are we using? No, oh, there was a lot. That's so, really confusing. Yeah. yeah. So what Garanger tried to do is, you know, restore a lot of the the Roman books. Okay. So now we get to people like Lambert Baudouin uh, and um, was our friend uh, Pius X. So he Pius X wrote uh, what Jesse? God bless you. Try less of you tune in. You got it. That's in 1903. But in 1911, he wrote. Uh, um, I guess it's him called a Divino. Is it Divino Aflatu? Dennis, 1911? Mm, sure. Divino Flato. Okay, so this is where he reforms the breviary. Uh, do you remember what was remarkable? It is uh, remarkable about the breviary's reform. And made it a little shorter, right? Yeah, he was trying to make it uh, simple, but there were some things that, uh, um, there's these things called the Laudate Psalms, which were prayed you know, all the way from uh, St. Benedict's time and what's that, 5th, 6th century? Uh, these are like Psalms 147 and 48 and 49. They're all about praise. And so the Latin word for praise is uh, laus or lauds, laudis. And so they're always prayed at morning prayer, but he rearranges these. So this is kind of a, a real key thing. Is that where but we get lauds from? That's exactly where we get lauds ah. from. Yeah. And it was called Divino Aflatu. First Divino of November, Aflatu, okay. 1911. 
Okay. But what, what is really interesting in this is not simply the reform of the bravery, but he says in this letter that it's also our intention to undertake the restoration of the Roman Missal. And I think many people don't know that. They think this, you know, that the reform of the Missal was something that came along in the 60s. But Pius X had this in mind all the way back in 1911. Well, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, true confessions here. I mean, I've read this, not a lot, but enough times that I should have noticed. And it just, the light bulb finally went on and I noticed it for the first time just teaching the liturgical movement course this last summer. Yeah, isn't it funny? Many people go back to Pius X as the arbiter of tradition, but he was actually a pretty radical reformer yeah. in some ways. You know, one of the things coming up was that priests used to have, even diocesan priests had obligation to do a whole lot of praying the office. And they were realizing that the modern life of the world, that the people didn't have as much time as they once had. And so they were kind of under penalty of law to do this. And then it was so impossible to do it. So mm -hmm. in some ways, a concession to the realities of, of the modern life and the modern priests mm -hmm. in the city. Yeah. Well, what uh, interrupted his grand plan and shortly after 1911? Why did this not happen right away? Uh, World War One. World War One. Right. So that was uh, 1914. So he dies like uh, what I think the Archduke uh, was it Franz Ferdinand mm -hmm. was assassinated. Then uh, Pius X dies a couple months after that, and then full fledged World War One breaks out in what July, end of July, August 1914. So that really kind of put a put a stop to the reform of the missile for a while. Uh, then we go to Pi. I mean, there's other stops along the way. Let's go up to, uh, we go to Pius XII, who writes uh, Mediator Dei yes. in 1947. And shortly after that, he forms this uh, Pian Commission, P-I-A-N, this commission for... Boy, I'm really glad you clarified the spelling <laughs> of that. P-I-A-N in 1948. <laughs> right, so this is within the year after uh, Mediator Day, he establishes this commission to kind of pick up on Pius X's intentions to, refor to, to undertake this reform of the Missal. So they do their work, and gradually in 1951, there's this kind of experimental restoration of uh, the Easter Vigil, because what had become, for a variety of reasons, and many of them good, is all of the masses got to be anticipated in the morning, and there was almost never mass after noon in the day. A lot of this had to do with the communion fast. And so the Easter Vigil began very often at like 6.30 a.m. on Saturday. You'd have this little fire out there at 6.30 a.m. Saturday morning, and that was the Easter Vigil. And so you'd celebrate the vigil, and then you'd go into mourning for the rest of Holy Saturday, and then the next day you would have uh, Easter Sunday Mass. That's a lot different than what I'm used to. That is a lot different. So, I mean, you don't have to, you know, if you like what you're used to now, don't thank the council. You can go back to 1951 and thank uh, Pius the uh, 12th. And then in 1955, the whole rest of Holy Week was uh, restored. And now we're really getting into high gear with the council. So Pius XII dies on October 9th, 1958, and John the 23rd is elected at the end of October 1958. Okay, so John 23rd, elected October 28th, 58. Do you know when he announces his intentions to have the council? Not too uh, long after him. Uh, like two weeks. Uh, it's, you're pretty close. It was about 11 weeks. Wow. So, I mean, imagine, I, I don't remember, but John 23rd was like one of the oldest men to be elected pope. 
he, he was a pretty old guy. I mean, at the time of his election, and you know, of course, none of us was around then. But I, I think I remember thinking that you know, we just wanted some guy just to kind of come in and not do anything crazy, and just to add some stability for a while. And then, less than three months after being elected pope, he announces his intention to have the Second Vatican Council. Right. He was seventy-six at the time. Seventy-six. Okay. All right. But you know, being that old, he was around when all this other stuff was going on, right? I mean, people often present Pius the Twelfth as the stodgy old traditionalist, and John the Twenty-third as the the hip uh, young liberal, but. I don't think it's really good to see it that way. I think it's better to see it in the, in the line of the continuity rather than the, the difference. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So uh, let's see. Later, just a couple months after that. So what he what they had to do. This is how the 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 gears of the Second Vatican Council started to turn. So a couple of months after he announces his intention, they have uh, this central preparatory commission to get ready for the council, and they solicit responses from the world's bishops about what it is that they want to talk about. And when it all came back in, about twenty percent of the you know ten thousand responses had to do with the liturgy. So it was pretty. You know, pretty key thing. Uh, in June of 1960, so they take all these responses, they see what people want to talk about, and then they come up with these, I don't know, these little preparatory commissions on different topics, like, say, one on a religious life, one on the laity. And I think, Dennis, maybe you remember this. Wasn't uh, Reynolds Hillenbrand uh, on that laity preparatory commission? Or at least at some point he was. Yeah, some people that, that he knew, I think, were on the commission. Mm. Okay. And so the one on the liturgy was one of 10 different preparatory commissions. All right. So what happens then is this of this on this liturgical preparatory commission, uh, they have, you know, like 50 people involved, you know, 25 of them are bishops and about another 30 of them are different uh, uh, consultants. And they start to meet and they meet uh, first in November of 1960. And they then they divide up into subcommissions. You have somebody who's going to talk about, well, I mean, just go back and think of the various chapter headings of the, the Constitution. So you have the liturgical year, you have sacred art and architecture, you have music you have the mass, you have the ritual, you have the pontifical, you have the calendar. And so this one commission is further divided up into these different uh, subcommittees. And so they all work on putting together this draft of the Constitution. All right. And so they meet uh, back and forth until finally in January, the, uh, the their final draft of the Constitution on the liturgy is finished, January of 1962. All right. So you with me so far? Mm-hmm. All right. Absolutely. So what oh, you're saying is the text of Vatican II didn't fall out of the sky when the bishop showed up in Rome. Is that what I'm oh, hearing? That's exactly <laughs> what you should, you should be hearing. And, you know, that's why I think, you know, this might turn into two podcasts here, but I think that's why it's important to, to start, you know, back with Garanger and back with Baudouin and back with Pius X and Divino Aflatu and back with Pius XII is, you know, to get a sense that, I mean, the this was really a long time coming and it was hardly uh you know an innovation that you know just as you say dropped out of the sky in and the then 1960s. you can take it back even further because the council of trent talked about introducing some vernacular into the liturgy the council of trent right pious mm-hmm. to fifth 15 communion under both kinds but that it wasn't the right time to do it for various reasons it would look sure. like the church was capitulating to the reformation so it took them what 400 years to to get around to it but yeah. the thoughts have been in the works for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah. Jesse, quiz. When did, yes. the, count, when did the council open? In 1963. 1962, you're right. But uh, I'm looking for a month and a day. 
Oh, I was and, looking at their fiscal year. Sorry. October, right? October. Yeah. Yeah. See, you'll understand why I think you could know this uh, when you hear the answer. It's October when? October. I Let don't me know. put it this way. So who opened the council? John the 23rd. Yeah. And his feast day is? The 23rd of October. October 11th. You're right. October <laughs> oh, 11th. Oh, yeah. We just had yeah. it. So oh, my gosh. I should yeah. grade test the way Chris does. You get the wrong answers. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> oh, my God. I think yeah. I should edit that out. That is yeah. humiliating. No. The only reason I know that is I have the answer sheet in front of me, so oh. don't feel too bad. I went to the guy's canonization. I should know oh, that. Oh, that's right. You, you should know that. Man, I was, I, you know, I was, I was confusing him with... Uh, <laughs> With with Pope John Paul the twenty third. Yes, that's right. Yes. That's right. Yeah. And Pluto. <laughs> and okay, so the, but you know, the interesting thing about that yeah. is normally a saint's day is the day they die, right? It's their birthday mm-hmm. into heaven. But they carefully, I guess, chose not to do that. Is that right? Intentionally put it on the day yeah. the council opened instead of the day he died. Absolutely he died on right. June 3rd. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So his feast day is on the day that he opened the council, and uh, let's see, there's almost three thousand bishops there. Uh, and then they had to form like official commissions. This is different from the preparatory commission, but they formed a liturgical commission at the council that was made up of 25 bishops. 16 were elected from the you know 2,500 bishops that were there and eight were selected by uh, the Pope himself. And the uh, secretary, I think for all this, kind of the common person in the preparatory commission, in the liturgical commission, in the concilium that follows is Annabale Bonini. Annabale Bonini. That's right. Okay. So the council opens on October 11th. And now maybe you've read some of this stuff. You're thinking, I've never read John the 23rd's opening of the council, but you have because if you have, it may be for this reason that uh, a long time later, Pope Benedict would make this famous, uh, uh, give this famous talk to the to the College of Cardinals, where he talks about the hermeneutic of reform, reform and yep. renewal versus the hermeneutic of discontinuity, discontinuity. And disruption. So, and he cites uh, when he's promoting this idea of the hermeneutic of reform, he says, I only need to cite John the 23rd's well known words at the opening of the council back on October 11th, 1962, where we're meant to kind of bring forward and safeguard the faith that's been given to us and but at the same time, see how it might be best lived and applied to the people of our day. And okay. he talked about having a new enthusiasm, new joy, all acceptance of the entire Christian faith. So it's like this, hey, we got this great stuff and we want all the world to know it. We're going to do what we have to do to make it fully known. It wasn't anything about watering it down or changing it or making it less than it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. See, and this is a great point. When we get to this next document that we're going to read by Paul VI after the council, he says that exact same thing. He says the exact same thing. It's like a broken record reading through some of this stuff. I know. It's very consistent. Everybody ignores the Pope, and sometimes they lament it in in documents. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the council opens October 11th, 62. And from uh, October 22nd to November 13th, they discuss this, uh, they call the schema or the kind of the rough draft, if you want to put that way, that the preparatory commission had put together. They discuss this for 50 hours at St. Peter's on the floor. 50 straight hours, 50, no, that's, bathroom no bathroom breaks. breaks, anything. That's right. And then they then they uh, threw it in the fire and, and the smoke came out. Uh, there were 328 <laughs> uh, different uh, interventions, 297 written uh, interventions. And so then this commission takes all of this commentary back with them and they work on the second draft of the Constitution. 
But what happens in the meantime is the year turns over to 1963, and as Dennis uh, said just a minute ago, John the 23rd dies on June 3rd. Okay, so this, as you can imagine, disrupted the council for a little bit. Uh, let's see, Paul VI is elected on June 21st, 63, and they go back to work. And on November 22nd, 1963, they approve the council fathers vote uh, 2,174 to 4. Uh, wow, to, that's a big disparity. That's a big disparity. All right, to approve uh, the schema. Now, what's noteworthy about November 22nd, 1963? Oh, I think I know this one. Mm -hmm. Now, you do. do it, Jesse. Man, I hope I get this right. It's the feast day it's of... Feast of St. Cecilia? Yes. 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 Which is also the anniversary of the release of... Trialism of Legitudity? Bingo. Bingo. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. November, Vindication. November 22nd, 1903 was when uh, Pius X wrote Trialism of Legitudity. So 60 years to the day is when they approve it. Um, JFK was also assassinated on that day. It's a side, but uh, so maybe that's why this this date is. Not we were having <laughs> such a good time. I know. I know. Come on. Uh, so on November fourth is when uh, Paul the Sixth uh, officially promulgates the Constitution, 1963. As Dennis said, 400 years ago from the end of the Council of Trent, uh, the calendar starts to roll over into 64. It's the Council still going on. Uh, and our first document that we're going to look at uh, in a future podcast is written in January 64. This is called Sacram Liturgium, and it's written by, it's a motu proprio by Paul VI, who's going to start to take these kind of general principles and apply them uh, more particularly. Now, eventually, uh, the council ends uh, December 8th, 1965, but now we begin these kind of post-conciliar uh, instructions. So there's Liturgium Authenticum, which is a motu proprio, not, a, uh, not an instruction uh, like we're using the term. Are the all of these five things motu proprios? No, no, no. Um, all five of them are... Um, Instructions from, I would say, the dicasteries from the congregation, the congregation for divine worship. Although its name changed throughout this, but we're gonna, so we're gonna look at these five. But well, I think Dennis, uh, we'll pick up a couple of these other significant ones along the way. Maybe Sacram Liturgiam or Vicesimus Quintus Annus from John Paul II. Um, but certainly these five. So in 64, and I'll, so I'll just give you the list. Uh, in 64 then was uh, inter ecumenici, which means among the ecumenical councils. Achievements were, and they'll talk about the restoration of the liturgy. Do you want me to name these or say any brief things about them? Or were we out yeah, of time? I was... Keep sounding yeah. smart, man. You sound good. <laughs> okay. Yeah, maybe so, like a like what what they cover. Okay, just a couple of things then. So in '64 is this interecumenici, and a couple of things it starts to change. And again, we'll get these is this is what we'll get into uh, uh, in more depth. But one, it used to be that if the choir some sung, sung something or the reader read something, the subdeacon, the the readings, the priest would have to say all of those same texts himself. He would have to duplicate everything. That's no longer to be done after inter ecumenici. Uh, it says the basis of translations is the Latin liturgical text. Uh, prayers at the foot of the altar are omitted. The last gospel is omitted. This is all the way back from uh, 1962. And it also says, Dennis, you'll know this. This is mm -hmm. the instruction that says the main altar should be preferably freestanding. freestanding. That's right. Yeah. But this so is even right. before versus populum was... Uh was a rule, right? Or at least a, a, an option. Yeah, they, they're not talking about uh, 
Well, you know this better than, than I do. I mean, there was some versus populum before the council, but no, this freestanding altar in the document has nothing to do with the direction the priest is facing. Right. They're trying they to bring out the symbolism of the altar as Christ standing amidst his people. And it's not a hollow wooden thing with, you know, an open back, you know, it's like Jesus in his hospital gown. The whole thing should be there, right? <laughs> so you should see the front, the back. It should be one piece of stone. It should be solid and dignified and freestanding. meant you could incense all around it. So sometimes you just see a rule and you think, oh, yeah, that's because they wanted, you know, the rule that came down the road. Well, maybe, maybe not. Just probably at that point it was to bring out the dignity of the altar itself which was already what the liturgical movement artists and architects were talking about for a long time yeah see what's what's noteworthy in all these things though is right is that they're not publishing a brand new missal or sacramentary with every instruction so the real confusing thing about this 10 years is you have different instructions at different times you have different inserts and you have different texts and different translations and different types of rubrics i would imagine that they maybe sometimes compete with each other uh they do you know so you have a missile that says one thing but then you have this instruction that comes out and says another thing well now you've got to start using whiteout and sticky notes weren't invented then but i mean yeah it was it was a really you know i gather really kind of confusing mess so in any case so that was the first one the second one is called trez abhink Anos, and that's in 1967. Three pink years. (laughs) Close. Three years hence. So three years after the council, uh, there's this second instruction. Uh, And so one of the things that it says is, for example, the celebrant may say the canon allowed. Uh, At the end of the mass, now picture this, Jesse, at the end of the mass, the blessing of the people comes immediately before the dismissal, not after the dismissal. What do you make of that? So, I, may Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. That's the order. I would imagine that it emphasizes this uh, idea of going out and going forth and, and, you know, taking Mass with you as being the, the very last part. Yeah, it is. Kind of, but I'm, so what they were doing in, until then is they were saying, uh, Ite Misa es Deo Gratias. May Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Because I think the the history of this is, imagine when you go to a, like an Episcopal mass, you know, with the bishop as he's blessing people as he departs the, out the center aisle. And so that those blessings came to be appended at the end of the mass. And so the dismissal was the very last thing. And then you had the blessing, which might seem odd to us today, because since 1967, that's been flipped. The blessing comes before the dismissal. That starts in uh, 1967. But doesn't a bishop still bless people on his way out? He does, but I think the genesis of putting that on to the end of the of the mass came from the priest or the deacon offering blessings at the conclusion ah. of the mass. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. What's okay. next? The next one is uh, from uh, let's see, 1970. Maybe we should say something else just a little bit before then. So in 1969, so 50 years ago. This year is when uh, the Missale Romanum, the the Novus Ordo, could be used. So that was a 1969 thing. And in Italy, at least, uh, I think we've talked about this um, general audience by Paul VI once before. They began using it in November of 1969. But the third one, the third instruction is called Liturgiae Instaurationes. Okay, what is instaurationes? Instruction? Uh, think of... Oh, let, no, let, restore. Restore. Yeah, restore no, right? Oh, my gosh. I'm no. not even going to say why I should no, know that. No, no, explain it. Explain it. It's easy well, to overlook. It's a, 
Well, it's an, uh, first of all, the motto for Pope Pius X was to restore all things in Christ. So Instaurare omnia in Christo. Yeah, so instaurare. But that's also the liturgical institute <laughs> motto. And that is no accident, my friend. Yeah, mm-hmm. so liturgicae. Uh, liturgia, excuse me, instaurationes means liturgical uh, restoration or liturgical reform. And so that gives even further applications of the more general norms. I'm back in the negative points now. Dang it. <laughs> no, you're doing good. So in 1970, 1969-70 is when the first typical edition in Latin of the Novus Ordo Missal came out. And at least in the United States, it took us four or five years to translate it. So it didn't come out until uh, 1974 in English, in English. Now, what's kind of interesting there is um, in 1972, there's this document called the Ministeria Quaedam. What was that about, Dennis? That was about the minor orders being suppressed, right? Right, right. And so the first edition of the Roman Missal, the Novus Ordo Roman Missal, still accounted for subdeacons, for example, because it came out before Ministeria Quaedam did in 1972. So in uh, 1975 was the second edition of uh, the Roman Missal, and it took us 10 years to translate that. We got that done in uh, 1985. Uh, And then see, our other, our next kind of uh, noteworthy mark is this uh, letter by John Paul II on the 25th anniversary of Sacrosanctum Concilium, Mm -hmm. which they call Vicesimus Quintus Annus. Annus. Yeah, and that'll be worth the podcast, I think, Dennis. Yeah, maybe two. Yeah, Uh, the one after that is the fourth instruction on the Constitution. That's called Veritatis Legitime, and that's on enculturation. And that's uh, been a hot topic lately, especially uh, with the Amazon Synod. Uh, and then the fifth instruction was from 2001, Liturgiam Authenticam, and that was on translations. And this is why when the third edition of the Roman Missal in uh, Latin came out in 2000, it used a whole different set of translation principles, which we'll talk about when we get to this podcast. And that's those principles are what were employed to translate the current missile that we have. And that became available to us in English in 2000. So the first translation that we had, the second edition or the first edition, mm-hmm. those were using different rules of translations? Yes. yes. Oh. We never got a yeah. second edition, strangely, because we couldn't oh. put our act together to get it translated <laughs> properly. By Wait, the time we there's had- no... There's no second edition? Well, it was put out in Latin, and it was translated in some other countries, but the English-speaking bishops couldn't get their act together. So by the time they were ready to do it, it didn't get approved, and then they just said, you know what, there's a third one coming, so just just shelve that one. <laughs> That's so, hilarious. Isn't it funny? <laughs> from what I understand, it wouldn't have been a great thing for any of us to have <laughs> that second edition anyway. So wow. we just sort of yeah. uh, surfed over that one. Mm-hmm. But in any case, that's kind of the... The, the broad view, that's, that's the last uh, couple hundred years of the liturgical movement in uh, 25 minutes from Garaget up to uh, where things stand now. So, like I said, when we get to these other podcasts, we're going to look at some of these post-conciliar instructions and motu proprios. I don't know what the plural in Latin of motu proprio is. Motu proprios. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> uh, but... Um, We'll see how these uh, the the Constitution has been applied and interpreted by the Magisterium uh, over the last fifty years. Wow, that was that was an impressive virtuoso performance that, there. Chris. That was, mm. and as the Thanks. caboose of this literary train. I think we should go to a question. Do you mean liturgical train? I do mean liturgical train. <laughs> All right, let's go to a question. Sounds good. Well done, Chris. Well done. I am not. I am like on my C game today, man. 
So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Okay, this week we have a question from Keith. And Keith says, morning, gentlemen. I don't Good know how morning, he knows. Keith. Yeah. Uh, but that it's morning? <laughs> yeah, right. Or that we're gentlemen. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Either, of, either of those. All right. Uh, he says, probably like a lot of parishes, we refer to those assisting in the distribution of the Holy Eucharist during the Mass as Eucharistic ministers. I have, <clears throat> I have been one for 20 years in podcast in podcast. Uh, over the last couple of years, I've learned that the appropriate normal term is extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. In a parish meeting, our head pastor referred to the role in the proper term. This leads me to question, how should we say the word? Is it extraordinary minister or is it extraordinary minister, making it sound more like the beneficial <laughs> of the ordinary than the last associated improper meaning? Keith, I love the nuance of this question. Yeah. Well, maybe before we even talk about pronunciation, let's talk about Eucharistic minister versus extraordinary minister. Because ordinary and extraordinary actually mean something quite precise. So an ordinary minister of the Eucharist would be who, Chris? Uh, that would be the bishop, priest, or deacon are the ordinary ministers of distribution of Holy right. Communion. Which doesn't mean they're not very exciting. It just means that they're the ones who are first given the job to do these things that's the ordinary person who does it well and even the bishop we call the or or the ordinary, others, right? like we yeah. call him the ordinary so it's kind of it's kind of a, uh, a term that has a special ecclesial meaning that I'm trying to wonder I mean, just now as i say i'm trying to wonder just what it is but i mean it, it means kind of the standard the norm Right. And extraordinary means if you really need them, so you have a stadium full of 10,000 people receiving communion, you, you may not have enough priests to do that. So they used to say Eucharistic minister more like just kind of a task that interested people would do when they wanted to feel involved. But then that became kind of clarified as, no, it's not just because you feel like it and you want to feel involved. It's an actual precise term for occasion and need based on necessity and better regulated. Right? Yeah, and that's out of the ordinary course of things. It's beyond the ordinary course. And it's also, too, they'll, they'll say in a document called, I think, Ecclesiae de Mysterio, that they're not just extraordinary ministers or ministers of the Eucharist. Their commission is to distribute communion. That's it. Not to do any other Eucharistic things. And so the official term is extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. But I think in light of what you're saying, Dennis, I think if if the word ordinary plays so prominent a role, I think uh, extraordinary rather than extraordinary is probably right. the, the better yeah. way to say it. But hopefully yeah. they are extraordinary, extraordinary right. people. I don't think there's an actual rule on that. It's just, well, what kind of emphasis do you want to make? Extraordinary makes it sound like in the cultural usage that you're just really, really good at it. You know, you're extraordinary. But extraordinary really kind of sounds like outside of the ordinary. Maybe like that's extra normal. Yeah, extraterrestrial, <laughs> you know, who knows what. So the idea that 
if you want to make that choice in your life <laughs> to emphasize that, I guess that's a realist, reasonable thing to do. But I don't think there's any kind of strict rule on that as far as I know. I think your explanation was extraordinary and, oh. and extraordinary. For me, it was rather ordinary, actually. I saw a t-shirt or a meme. (laughs) Would you call this a meme, Jesse? It says, I rarely... No, this is a podcast, Chris. This is... is, No, no, uh, imagine this. Picture this. (laughs) I I think it's t-shirt. Oh, it's from from one of our listeners, Justin Jeffco, sent this to me. said, this guy is wearing a t-shirt, his mask, that says, I rarely speak Latin, but when I do, it's extraordinary. I like it. Get it? Get it? I like it. I like it. Big fan. All right, Keith, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at. Oh, sorry, that's me. Yeah, you, you're first. <laughs> at liturgyguys or tweet Dennis at. DMAC Super Taster. Or do you pe- can text Chris at. Do people Chris, really, what's your cell phone do, number? Do people really t- t- tweet you? Yes. Do they? Yes. I think really I have a like thing? nine followers now. And. <laughs> And one of them is the liturgy guys, but not mm-hmm. Jesse Weiler. How about the real liturgy guys? I don't do very often, so people are dis- disappointed. I don't say much. That's fine. I know some birds that don't tweet that often either. All right. Thank you, and God bless. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoramus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College.